listening to Expand Your Horizons, the podcast for English language teachers and wanderlust indulgers. This is Lauren and Shannon, teacher training duo of TefelHorizons.com. Each week, we bring you teaching advice, travel tips, and inspiring stories from around the globe. Here's to making this big world a little smaller by connecting ESL teachers everywhere. Hey, Josh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Shannon. Awesome. So where are you right now in the world? I am in Andorra, which is this small principality between Spain and France in the mm-hmm. Pyrenees Mountains. It's a tiny little country. There's, I think, uh, 80,000 residents or something like that. So really small. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I think a lot of people probably, at least I hadn't even really heard of it before I heard that you were living there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I told my family that I was going to Andorra, I told my grandfather, and his hearing isn't the best. So I said, you know, uh, Dita, I'm moving to Andorra. I said, what? I'm moving to Andorra. Why are you moving to Angola? <laughs> uh, like, no, no, that's not it. I was like, no, it's Andorra. And then I, I pulled up a map and I showed it to him. And he's like, oh, that seems great. Have a great time. <laughs> That's good. But yeah, Perhaps. if you look at it from a map in Europe, you really can't see it. So yeah, like I think a lot of my family members, like, you know, cousins and stuff, they're still kind of like figuring out where I am. Yeah. Funny experience, I'm sure, to live in a part of the world that people are like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so tell us, okay, you're working as, a, an, as an ESL teacher. Um, tell us a yep. little bit about your background. How did you get to where you are now? Um, do you mean in general or in terms of teaching? Yeah, it doesn't have to be your life story, but I guess how did you get into the, <laughs> this field of teaching ESL and how did that lead you to teaching in Andorra? Um, I'd always kind of been interested in teaching, um, but then like I was in I was in college and I was probably in my second or third year and I was talking to this friend of mine. I'm not going to drop his name because he's kind of um, a dumbass <laughs> and sometimes sometimes you don't want to be associated with certain people. So let's just call him Peter. Right. Um, I have a feeling guy, I know who you're talking about and I know you two have a very, very playful sort of <laughs> negative banter kind of relationship. Oh, no, this guy's the worst. <laughs> no, sh- no, 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 it's all good. Shout out to Peter. Um, but yeah, so he had been in the ESL game for a couple years before I had, and I always, like, really enjoyed traveling, and so I kind of saw ESL. To be honest, I saw it as a vehicle to travel to more places and get more experience um, in different countries, to absorb different cultures and things like that. And then one day I was talking about it, and he was like, yeah, you should do it. You'd be good at it. And I said, okay. And then after that, I was off to the races. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so you've been teaching in Andorra. Is that the first destination? Is that where you first landed after you decided to start teaching? Uh, yeah. I did a couple months after the CELTA in D.C. Thank mm-hmm. you again for that, Shannon. Oh, um, <laughs> and, uh, but that was a substitute teaching. Um job and it was just like a few hours here or there when another teacher was on vacation or something they'd call me because I was living in the area at the time they'd Mm -hmm. call me and be like hey can you uh sub for me and that was a really cool experience because in DC 
all of the language schools, you have um, students from all over the world. As opposed to here, everyone is from Andorra or Spain or France and things like that. So it made very interesting lesson planning. True. Yeah, you have yeah. a really multinational, multilingual class. Um, yeah, stimulating conversation when you get like um, the woman from Korea and the woman from Iran talking to each other about like superstitions or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So what is your daily life like in Andorra? Tell us a little bit about your job, what kind of students you teach, kind of what, what does a typical workday look like for you? Well, so I teach at a private academy. Um, so most of my classes are in the afternoon. I start my earliest classes around um, one in the afternoon, and uh, I teach the adults because over here they have that, um, like the Spanish tradition where you have two hours for lunch. They call it the mediodía, and a lot of them they decide to take an English class at that time. And so generally around one to I'd say four thirty, anywhere in that window, I'm usually teaching adult classes. Okay. And then once the public schools let out, that's when I have the kids. And so from 4.30 to at the latest 9.30, I'm teaching kids and some adult classes, some teenagers. It's currently every level and like exam prep. So generally my afternoons and my early evenings are just full with the job. And then so I have my mornings free. And so generally I'll just walk around town, sit in a cafe or, you know, go to the gym, walk in the mountains, things like that. That sounds great. So you have a really yeah. interesting mix of students. You've, you work with adults, you work with kids. Um, do you work with a, a mix of different levels too, like beginner, advanced, everything in between? Um, yeah. So my, my um, most beginner level is, <laughs> they call it kids three at the school. And it's generally like, you know, the basic questions like, how old are you? What's your favorite animal? What's your favorite color? You start teaching past simple, past continuous and vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And it's just a lot of drilling, like the same vocabulary games and stuff like that. A lot of games, basically. And then my highest level is um, the B2 level, so upper intermediate. I don't teach any advanced students. And um, so that's pretty much the parameters in which I work. But it's definitely an interesting mix of um, students. Yeah. Do you feel a big difference in teaching the kids versus adults? <laughs> oh my god so much one probably of, an unnecessary question but yeah, yeah. what yeah. would you say the, the difference is yeah well one of the difficult things is um I'll teach children for two hours and then I'll have like an upper intermediate adult class and you, you kind of have to recalibrate your brain after that because you've been in like kids teaching mode so you're mm -hmm. talking a little slower you're talking about like animals and like pizza and stuff and then the, the adult class starts and you're kind of like hello how are you it's like oh god that's so patronizing like <laughs> um but yeah there's a big difference for sure um I find with children there's a lot of repetition involved mm -hmm. just to like just you know every day going over the date what is today what is tomorrow what was yesterday and all of that stuff the months the days um on the one hand it makes it easy planning because you kind of have 15 minutes already planned for your lesson mm -hmm. but on the other hand it can get like by the third or fourth day doing it you are kind of like oh my god 
<laughs> like I, <laughs> this a is Groundhog my Day kind of feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a Groundhog Day feeling. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah. that's good to know. That's interesting. And I've, it's funny, I've trained um, CELTA candidates before who have a lot of experience teaching young learners. And on the CELTA course, yeah. you know, you work exclusive, exclusively with adults. So it's funny always giving feedback to those teachers. Like, by chance, have you worked with young learners in the past? And they're like, yeah, how did you yeah. know? Like, well, <laughs> you, you can tone down the exaggeration like just a bit. <laughs> you, can, yeah. you can sniff them out. Yeah, it's great, though. Um, yeah. So for those of us who hadn't really heard of Andorra before, what is it like? So we talked about your job. What's the country like in terms of the nature, the culture? Um, yeah, um, what is living there like? Well, in terms of nature, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a valley in the middle of the Pyrenees. So like you are just surrounded by these, you know, very big green mountains. And, um, you know, down in the valley, it's pretty low, but then you, the country has seven parishes. Mm-hmm. So um, when you go to each parish, some of them are at higher altitudes, so you get like these really beautiful views and everything, amazing hikes everywhere you go. And um, as far as culture goes, it's kind of hard to say. The country is largely tourist-driven. I think it generates something like 90% of uh, the revenue. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you say culture, it's ski culture. It's snowboarding mm-hmm. culture in the winter because um, this this part of the Pyrenees actually has the cheapest um, skiing, like seasonal ski passes in all of Europe. I think like, yeah, in all of Europe. Okay. So a lot of people come here for the season to ski, especially from Argentina. You have a lot of South Americans in the country from December to April. And they just come. It's just skiing dudes that come and chase winter that <laughs> like the shred uh-huh. and but honestly that generates most of the economy so winter is very active um there's generally more of a nightlife there so if you're into nightlife you should go during the winter months because that's when it's a bit more alive you have much more tourists and seasonal workers and then right now so the tourists all left in um like late april so now it's a bit more relaxed, and um, mostly what's happening is um, a lot of marathons and mountain biking. Mm-hmm. It's very, very active. It is not a sedentary uh, country at all. People are very, very active. Right. And um, in culture, in, I don't know, that's hard to define. Like, what do you mean? Like in terms of food, music, sure, things like yeah. that? Um, well, food, like... A lot of the food that they say is Andorran is actually mm-hmm. traditionally Catalan food. Okay. Like there's, this, um, there's this soup called Escudea. It's delicious. I recommend it. It's made with like um, a Spanish sausage and like the bones to make like a broth. And then it's stewed in veggies and like meat. It's very, very delicious. Very hearty. It's great for mm-hmm. the winter. Sounds like it. But yeah, but it's not like traditional Andorran food. It's actually Catalan but they have like these Escudilla festivals in Andorra and stuff and stuff like that. So you see a lot of Catalan influence. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting because they don't identify as Catalan. They identify as Andorran. Right. But they're the only nation in the world where the national language is Catalan. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone speaks Spanish here. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say about a third of the people speak French as well. But Catalan is the like official language in the government and everything. 
Okay. And um, yeah, so when you're getting your visa and you're signing your work contract there, it's going to all be in Catalan. So brush up on that if you're going to go there. Interesting. Is there somebody available to translate so you know what you're signing or is it just kind of your responsibility to figure out what the contract says? (laughs) Just from a logistics standpoint. (laughs) Speaking from personal experience, you probably shouldn't sign anything that doesn't have an English translation right next to it. That's what I was going to say. if your if your employer isn't translating a contract for you, you probably shouldn't sign a contract for right. them because yeah. they probably changed one number or one word that'll have you work in like for minimum wage or something like that. Or like <laughs> if you leave this academy, I'm, I have the right to sue you. <laughs> right. And that's that's really easy to miss in a contract when you don't speak the language. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so if your school does that, then you should probably walk to the next one and say, hey, do you have an English contract? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So I know just kind of knowing what you were looking for, the little bit that I know about what you were looking for when you first started your job search, it seemed like you were definitely prioritizing um, a cultural experience, but also kind of prioritizing a place where you could like play outside. (laughs) Is that how you landed on Andorra, would you say? Or was it more random than that? Oh, it was so random. It was an accident. Okay. So how did here. you how did you find the opportunity to teach where you are now? Um, well, where I am now uh, was word of mouth. So this okay. is my second year here. I was in another academy last year. Mm-hmm. Last year, I was just, you know, I had myself and I was just browsing online and I went to teachaway.com. And then I was actually looking at countries like Korea and Taiwan to start. But then I saw an advertisement for Andorra. Andorra. Okay. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sent my CV. I get a call back in two days. It was like, hey, let's do an interview. Oh, okay. So we, <laughs> we do an interview. And then, you know, at the end of the interview, it was like, do you want a job here? <laughs> and, yeah, and at the time, I was still doing substitute teaching in D.C. And I was living with my parents. So it wasn't very, like, financially sustainable. So I was mm-hmm. like, all right, here we go. And then, so that was in late June of, what was that? What was that, Shannon? 2017? Yes, I think so. That would make sense. Yeah, Yeah, so about two years ago, exactly, from the time of recording this. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Two years ago. Damn. Uh, (laughs) So late late June 2017, and then I was in Andorra by September 1st. Wow, okay. Yeah, but... It was a complete accident. I was actually looking in Asia because um, Western Europe, there wasn't like that much of a ESL job market, it seemed. It seemed much more mm-hmm. difficult because you don't have, if you don't have an EU passport. Exactly. Like, I'm sure you experienced that when you were in Budapest, mm-hmm. just like having to renew your visa and stuff. I was like, oh, that sounds complicated. Yep, that's true. Uh, Did you have to get on a bus and everything and like cross borders and all that? Sort of. Theoretically, yes. So that is what a lot of people do in that region, in kind of the Central Eastern Europe region is um, tech, you know, so technically any of the Schengen territories, which is most of the EU. um, Yeah. The rule is you can be there for three months on a tourist visa and then you need to not be there anymore. Right. So theoretically, then you're supposed to go home. Um, But what a lot of people do is, like you said, they'll just jump on a bus or a cheap flight to a country that is not part of that Schengen area um, yeah. and then cross the border back again and just hope that they don't notice that you just left 
you know, a couple days ago. So it looks like you're coming in for the the first time or for a brand new time. You get a new stamp and then that sort of gives you another <laughs> three months before they notice. So this is, yeah, that's how a lot of people yeah. skirt that rule. Um, I ended up doing that for a bit and then eventually um, went through the process to actually get a work visa and a residence permit. So, yeah. Yeah, I've heard similar things about working in Spain is you have to do a student visa Mm -hmm. and then the school that you're working will give you like some BS online class to do and then you just have to do that and then it renews your visa or something like that. I see. Yeah. A lot of countries have ways around it. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) They're very, ESL schools are very efficient in finding loopholes in the visa system, it seems. There we go. That's a nice way to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, great. So what are your plans from here? Are you planning to stay in Andorra? Are you planning to move on somewhere else? Um, well, I'm really bad at planning uh, more than longer than a year of my life. Unfortunately, I'm short term mem- short term brain. <laughs> OK, I don't think <laughs> that's so, a bad thing. All right. I like to hear that. <laughs> um, but so I am ended my relationship well with the school provided mm-hmm. they don't fire me in the next week for some reason. Okay. Uh, but I, but I think I'm good. Uh, <laughs> and so my plan now is actually, I'm looking for work in China or maybe Taiwan for the next school year. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I want to kind of make a little more money for a travel budget. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. my plan is to do one year. Like I haven't thought further than that. But I want to keep a good relationship here so that I have it in my back pocket because, you know, it's been two years here. It's been really, really uh, thrilling part of my life. And I'd like to have the option to return if I can. Absolutely. Would yeah. you say, so I think there's an understanding or sort of a general knowledge maybe that teaching in Asia, like China or South Korea, for example, it's easier to make more money, like enough to save quite a bit. Whereas in Europe, you're you're going to make a good living wage, but probably not enough to save a lot. Would you say that's accurate? Um, from talking to people, yes. But I will say this, that if you do want to save a little money in Western Europe and you know how to live frugally, Andorra is actually a very good option cool. because it's technically not in the European Union. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of tax loopholes here. And that's a whole nother podcast that we can talk about. (laughs) (laughs) The weird tax evasion that they have here. But um, all that said, basically, you can actually make like in a private language academy like the one I'm in, you can make a decent amount of money if you find an affordable apartment. Mm -hmm. And if you find a school that will sponsor your apartment so you can avoid going through a real estate because the real estate will, you know, clean you out if they can. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, with deposits and fees and all that stuff. That's helpful to know, though, because I know for a lot of people deciding where they want to teach, obviously, the place is a priority, you know, culture that they're looking at, languages. um, But I know financial concerns are also something that people keep in mind. So good to know that Andorra is, is somewhere you can actually make some money. Well, if you do apply in Andorra, you should definitely ask in the interview, can you sponsor a homestay when I get here? And if it's a yes, then that's a good thing. And if the school actually helps you find a place, that's Mm -hmm. good. Because my first year, my employer, he didn't really do that. And it took a long time to find a place because, like I said earlier, it's very tourist-driven here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once the ski season comes around, these apartments are filling up like that. 
yeah extremely extremely quickly and so basically i was like staying in a hostel and it was just really expensive you know 25 euros a night mm-hmm. trying to find a place and i ended up having to like you know crash on couches and stuff until i found it and then i had to go through a real estate agency because i didn't know anyone so well i strongly recommend just if they don't sponsor that and you don't know anyone in the country that can help you or you're not in any of like the online like language expat groups and they can help you find like a place mm-hmm. don't don't do it. Don't go through a real estate agency unless you have a couple thousand euros to spare. <laughs> okay. That's really great yeah. advice. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Um, so I wish you- I had known that. Okay. Uh, yeah. That was one of my questions. Anything you wish you'd known before you moved abroad? So that's one thing. Um, anything else you wish you'd known before you moved abroad or before you started teaching? Um. Yeah. I mean, uh, culture shock is no joke. You know, okay. like... The first, the first month, everything's like really cool because everything's very new, and it's like, oh, like I'm like you know living in another country. I'm meeting all of these people, and so on and so forth. And then you know, like there does hit a point where you do get homesick, mm-hmm. and like I remember it hit me really hard at the first year when I went like around like you know October, November, December, and then I went home for Christmas. And I actually decided, you know, I have to find a way to, you know, just feel better about myself while I'm living there. So I decided to learn how to ski. And so what I'm saying is a great thing is actually to pick up a hobby Mm -hmm. and something from start, like from ground zero, starting from scratch to work on if you're feeling like homesick or if you're feeling really, really out of your comfort zone, it's just finding something to work on for yourself is incredibly beneficial. That's great advice as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's easy when you're in a new place and, you know, after that initial excitement sort of wears off and you don't know that many people yet, if you feel like you're just going to work, teaching and going home, teaching, going home, it's got to get a little bit repetitive and lonely. Yeah. And that's what it was. And also when you're in Andorra La Bella, the capital, Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a big shopping district, so you don't really, and like, it's also a lot of things close at 10 PM. So you're getting out of work and there isn't really much to do. And so you're kind of like, all right, what do I do with my time at night? Or like, and during the day, I'm just kind of walking through the same places, but, um, skiing and like any kind of like active sport in this country is great because when you go up into the mountain, you see like, this is what people are doing here. This is why people mm-hmm. are here. Yeah. Right. Again, that's, winter yeah. winter sports, that's the culture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you did get a CELTA certification before you started teaching, you mentioned. Um, what was that like? Would you say that it was helpful in terms of preparing you to teach? Um, it was okay, but the people that um, administered it for me were, like, really, really tough and kind of, like, really unkind. No, no, I'm just kidding. Thanks again. Thanks again, Shannon. Of course. And thank, La- thank Lauren when, uh, when you see her next. Um, no, the CELTA, was, the CELTA was good, um, but it was definitely, like, a full-time job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're arriving at 9 in the morning, you're leaving at 5, and then you do have extra work to do. Yep. And so um, you got to have, like, a pretty clean timetable in order to do it and I'm really glad I did it because I had no teaching experience like language teaching and stuff like that I had no experience prior to it and Mm -hmm. I like this 
I like the Celtic course because you do get um, hands-on experience. You do actually have to teach a few hours. And I think that's a great primer for people that have no teaching experience because I think a lot of people, they get performance anxiety when they teach because they're, they're not used to that environment where they're standing in front of people and eyes are on you and you're just kind of like explaining things like that. Mm-hmm. And so just having that experience before you actually jump into like another country or even just like another school to make it your, your career, I think is a really good thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's something you don't really think about until you get up in front of the class for the first time, that it does kind of feel like public speaking in a way that you wouldn't imagine without really thinking yeah, about absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Celtic course, I think, is terrifying in the sense that when you stand up in front of the classroom, you're not only teaching the students, but your trainer is in the back of the classroom observing you and assessing you. Your peers are in the back of the classroom watching you. So there's this yeah, extra performance true. element. But then the great thing Two about that... Two levels of observation. Definitely. The great thing about that yeah. is by the time you finish that and you stand in front of your own classroom in your first job there's a lot less. It's like, oh, it's just the students in here. Wow. <laughs> you know, I got this. It's nothing. <laughs> yeah. There aren't eight yeah, other people definitely. watching and judging me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. great. Uh, what would you say is one of your favorite things about working as an ESL teacher? Well, at my school, I like it because I have very small classes. So okay. it's like, you know, I like, I like teaching. It's just everything outside of teaching is what makes it feel like a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like okay. all of like the, hey, we have a meeting. Like, hey, you have to plan. Hey, you have to mark this stuff. And like, hey, we need more like, uh, you know, uh, training sessions with the staff. That feels like work. Mm-hmm. But in the moment teaching, it's okay. And the school I'm currently at, um, they have a lot of resources, which is a nice thing. Last year when I started, there was pretty much like, a couple of Cambridge books and that was it. And I was doing the same thing, like all levels, all ages. And so you really have to learn to be resourceful, which I guess is a good thing, like figure out what are you going to do and how can you teach with just like, you know, learning to find things online and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, I like um, how this school has a lot of resources because it does allow you to go on autopilot once you like kind of like have established yourself in the class and everything. And um you know, like there's less and less planning when like a lot of it is already done for you, That makes which sense. is great with kids. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Even yeah. just having access to a, a good resource library um, in uh, I noticed this in Budapest, we had a, a pretty good library. That was one of the reasons I chose to work at the particular school where I was for most of the time. Um, Saves you so much time. It does. It was great knowing like, OK, you know, I need a practice activity for this particular grammar point and then having books and at first it took me a little bit longer to kind of dig through them and and figure out where I could find stuff but once I knew it was so easy like oh I remember this one book has this great activity just you know grab that make some copies good to go so yeah it's very convenient yep and then uh sorry what was the question I already forgot uh oh I think that was that was basically your favorite things about working in ESL um yeah that and also um just uh you know, like with the adult classes, just listening to the stories and like getting a sense of like what makes people click in a different country. Mm-hmm. And then also I, I like teaching kids. Kids are funny. Um, they can kind of drive you off the wall sometimes <laughs> when like they just keep coming up with excuses for why they didn't do their homework that you can kind of see are full of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but, you know, 
I remember what it was like being a kid. So part part of me is smiling on the inside when I hear it, and I was like, "Oh, come on." Yeah. Yeah, I think that yeah. people... you did not lose your homework. You just didn't do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree that that human aspect of that personal aspect of teaching is so rewarding. Yeah. yeah. And teenagers too. Teenagers, I think, are the challenge. Mm-hmm. Did you have to teach teenagers? I do not have very much experience teaching teenagers. And it's something that, to be honest, intimidates me. So I'm curious to hear what your experience is like. Well, you got to find like this weird balance because like they they want like someone that they can relate to almost like a friend but you also have to be an authority figure mm-hmm. in a weird way like that's what i think that's what teenagers look for in a teacher is they want someone that they can kind of like uh <laughs> you know talk to and feel like um they can relate to but mm-hmm. you still that being said you're not one of their friends you are their teacher so you do have right. to like find this balance between you know you know, making them feel comfortable and being empathic with them, but also making sure that they do what they have to do and that they stay focused. And then just inspiring some that kind of um, are kind of not really inspired by anything. Right. <laughs> like that's the real challenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Again, that goes back to like, you have to find this balance between being a friend and a teacher. Yeah. But that's also for me, I have really small classes. So that dynamic is probably just for me. You know, when you have four students, you're allowed that dynamic. I imagine if you're teaching 20, 25 teachers it's, or teenagers, then it's very different. Yeah, I would imagine it's something similar, just sort of on a, multiplied, like on a bigger scale. It would probably oh make my that balance even more challenging. <laughs> I'm stressed just thinking about it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, so aside from just working and teaching, do you have a favorite travel destination, even if it's somewhere that you haven't actually lived or worked, but somewhere you've gotten to go? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. I've, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, like, I kind of, I've hit this point where I kind of like everywhere that I go, I can kind of find something mm-hmm. in each place. That's fair. Um, yeah, but I definitely, I'm very sentimental about um, North Africa. I've been mm-hmm. to Morocco and Tunisia. And also the Balkans. I really liked Montenegro and Albania. Oh, gosh. I love Montenegro. Yeah. You went? I've been to Montenegro. It is gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. Where did mm-hmm. you go? Uh, I spent most of the time I was there in the Bay of Kotor area. So I oh, did Herzegnovi, yeah. which is just one of my personal favorite places. And then Kotor yeah. is, is gorgeous. And I've been to Budva as well. Yeah, I went to Budva. Mm-hmm. Budva is um, fun. I it's- went... It feels sort of a more like a party destination, a touristy destination, but it, it's also gorgeous. Yeah, it was definitely a party destination. I got to my, I went there by accident because okay. uh, I missed my bus to Albania and I got there at like nine in the morning. I got to a hostel that I checked into and they were already like pouring me shots of Rocky. And I was like, welcome <laughs> to Montenegro. Welcome to Buffon. And I was like, oh boy, here we <laughs> okay, go. Okay, yep. <laughs> yeah. And like there was a lot of Russian tourists and stuff. So I think mm-hmm. it's like a popular destination spot. It is. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I really liked Montenegro. I really loved uh, Tunisia. I went there last Christmas, and that was a very substantive, mind-blowing trip. Okay, I have um, not been to Tunisia. I recommend it. You know, like, um, in this part of where I am in Andorra, you travel around Western Europe a lot, but it's really cool to get out of it mm-hmm. and kind of go to those places like 
I'm a history nerd, so I kind of like going to these countries where a lot of different empires and civilizations kind of pass through, like that are geographically inconvenient historically. Mm -hmm. And so like you kind of like can see like how it's kind of impacted a culture or like former um, former colonies and stuff. Yeah. Something really interesting that I had never even thought of until I went to Tunisia is, um, you know, most pretty much everyone there speaks French, um, which was the language of colonialism. But your level of French totally reflects your level of education there. Okay. And so, like, when you're like hanging out with university students, they often speak French to each other. But when you're in like like a different environment, they're all speaking Arabic. And a lot of people view French with disdain to this day because they see it as a language of oppression and things like that. Very so it's like, yeah, it's interesting. And like a country like that, you have like, um, it's like their domestic policy was foreign policy always. So there's always like people passing through and like, and it kind of just integrates itself into a culture. So you just have this really, really fascinating mix. And I got that in Morocco, Tunisia, Albania, and so all of those countries were great. Mm -hmm. yeah. Excellent. But I also, I also love just sitting out on a terrace somewhere in Spain, drinking a beer and talking to people. That also is, that makes me happy. I can imagine that sounds idyllic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, well, I think that that wraps up. Anything else you want to add about teaching, traveling, advice for our listeners? Um, I guess with advice with schools, uh, especially for going to Andorra, just do your homework and make sure that they sponsor your homestay. Great. And then um, with traveling, I don't know. I'm still scratching the surface with all the places I want to go. So I don't know. Absolutely. All right. Well, yeah. thanks so much again for being here for all of your advice and, and stories and um, take care. Thanks. Yeah. Great talking to you again. You too. Bye, Josh. Bye. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much to us. Feel free to leave a comment below if you enjoyed this and let us know what you want to hear about in upcoming episodes. If you know other teachers and travelers, we'd love for you to share this podcast with them too. And tune in this coming Tuesday for our next episode. Until then, you can find us at teflhorizons.com. Let's keep making this big world smaller by expanding horizons.